The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. Good to be with you this morning. My name is Chris. I'm the lead pastor here. If you're online with us, welcome. Uh, glad that you would join us. Uh, we have no, we have a lot of lot of text to get through today. So if you brought your Bible, and I hope you did, let's open that up to Matthew chapter eight today. Uh, you can open a phone or a tablet to Matthew eight. There are hardback black Bibles. We call them loners uh, underneath every single chair. You can take it home with you if you want. But that is on page eight uh, eight thirteen in those Bibles. Matthew chapter eight. If you're online with us, you can click the little Bible tab. You can Google search Matthew 8, uh, but that's where we're going to spend our time this morning is Matthew chapter 8. Hey, as you're turning there, uh, th- there are three types of fear, okay? Three, three types of fear. Uh, first, let me, let me tell you about these. The first one is, is what we'll call fun fear, okay? Fun fear. Uh, fun fear is why we go to scary movies, Right? It's why we go to uh, like, like haunted houses during Halloween time. It's why we hide behind corners and kind of jump out and scare our roommates or our spouses or our kids, right? So, so Harper's into this right now, just so you're aware. Like she is now hiding behind every corner in my house, which is making walking through my home anxiety producing, okay? She has scared me and I've screamed very high pitched more often than I'd like to admit, okay? But, but it's an anxious event. It's fun fear. That's fun fear, right? That is fun fear. It's also why we do things like extreme sports. That's fun fear, all right? Like jumping out of perfectly good airplanes, tying rubber bands to your ankles and jumping off of bridges, right? Wearing squirrel suits and somehow gliding. I don't know how that works. I took physics, doesn't make sense to me, but, but you know, Red Bull, like Red Bull stuff. That's, that's fun fear. That's fun fear, okay? That's the first type of fear. The second type of fear that I want you to know about is, is, is I'll, I'll just call it bad fear. Bad fear, okay? And uh, this is, like there's this kind of fear that will paralyze you. It will restrict you. It will, it will clamp down on your soul in some way. Like some people have to work through fear issues, right? In counseling or therapy or what, like mistrust issues. And so that's a type of fear. It's a type of fear that can, it can paralyze you, right? It can rob you of life. Bad fear is, is that, like you're so afraid of this or of that and the, that like the fullness of life, the goodness of life, it's robbed from you, it's lost on you because you're petrified, you can't move. That's, that's bad fear, okay? And then the third category of fear is, is good fear. There's good fear, right? There's fun fear, there's bad fear, but then there's good fear. Let me illustrate like this. Uh, about 10 years ago, uh, my, my sweet mother-in-law right here, uh, Mary Robinson, was walking in the Target parking lot uh, when a distracted woman slammed her car and hit sweet, sweet Mary Robinson, right? Hit her car, hit her, she hit the hood, and then she hit the floor. So three hits, hit, hit, hit. Okay, that was the move. I won't tell you which target it was, but it was near here, okay? (laughs) She was rushed to the hospital. Uh, They had surgery, uh, did all this stuff. She's fine now today. Praise the Lord, Mary Robinson is here, okay? It was a big old thing at the time, though. Freaked out when your mother-in-law gets hit by a car. So so I told my three-year-old daughter about this, because I'm a dummy, right? Uh, and, and Harper developed a fear of parking lots, okay? So, uh, so she was afraid of parking lots, and, and this is what would happen. This is a couple, it's three years ago, okay? So she's six now, and she was three then. Uh, we would get to Target when she was three after she heard this story, and she'd recognize the logo. She couldn't read, but she saw the, the Target, the red Target. She'd recognize it, and she'd start freaking out, 
right? And so I try to take her out of her car seat and set her down to like close and lock the, and she would not let go. She would grab a hold of me and slide down me like a fire pole and reside around my ankles until I would pick her back up and carry her through the parking lot. Okay, she was afraid of the parking lot. Now listen, that's a good fear for a three-year-old. That's good fear, right? That is good fear because she is far too little to, to be seen by rear view mirrors and people are flying through the parking lot, hitting old women, older women. I didn't say that in the first service. It's because you're here. They're flying, like they're texting, they're Instagramming while they're in the Target parking lot. I don't know what there is to Instagram there, but just stop, all right? But, but I did not want my little girl to experience what Mary experienced. I wanted her to be afraid. I wanted, that's good fear. That is good fear. It's a good type of fear. It's not the bad type. And it's not the bad type because Harper wasn't laying in bed at night, unable to sleep going, oh God, there's parking lots everywhere. There's parking lots everywhere. That's, that would have been bad fear. That would have been paralyzing, crippling fear. Now, now hear me. If she hits 20 and she's still afraid of parking lots, we've set aside money to help her with that, okay? But right? Like if she's calling me from college and being like, there's a parking lot here. I don't know what to do. Like that's, that's bad fear. That's when a, a good fear can turn into a bad fear. But right now at three, like that's a good fear. Okay. Today in, in Matthew chapter eight, in the beginning of chapter nine, we're going to talk about fear, but the good kind of fear. Okay. And I'm calling this sermon. I've titled this sermon. You're freaking me out. That's what I'm calling this sermon. I know it's a strange title, but but we're going to see three moments, three miracles, three stories in Jesus' uh, account here uh, where we're confronted with his power and authority. We're going to see his power and his authority, and it freaks the people around him out. Just freaks them out. And their responses are actually the thing I think Matthew wants us to see and learn from. So that's what we're going get, to get, get after here, okay? Matthew chapter 8. Let's start in verse 23. And when Jesus got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. And, and he said to them, why are you afraid? O you of little faith. Then he rose and rebuked the wind and the sea. And there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and sea obey him? All right. Story one. Jesus has been on the Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee. And now he and his disciples are headed to the other side, the Gentile side. There's a Gentile side and there's a Jewish side. And they are on the sea in their fishing boat when a storm arises. That's what happens here. And listen, this must have been some kind of storm. I mean, it must have been a, an incredibly terrifying storm because he is on the boat with experienced fishermen who have been fishermen their whole lives. They've been in lots of storms. And hear me, when the guys who live on boats start freaking out because of the storm, you can be assured that's a real deal storm. It's a legit cat five kind of storm they're going through. Things are getting bad. Now, there's just something to note here at the beginning of this passage that, that I think is rather obvious, but I don't want us to miss it, okay? Jesus is on the boat with 
his disciples when the storm comes. Did you see that? Like, I'll say it again. Jesus is on the boat with the disciples. I don't, I don't think you're seeing this. I don't think you're, this is hitting. Okay, I'll, listen. Jesus is on the boat with the disciples and they still go through a storm. Don't overlook this. Don't overlook this church. Just because you got Jesus in your boat, it does not make you exempt to the storms. Okay, but, but, you can count on the fact that he is with you in your boat. Our D group this week, Lori Prashoff pointed this out in our D group, that Jesus chose their boat to be in. He's in your boat, but listen, storms will come, even with Jesus in your boat. But now here's the problem in this scenario, okay? Bro's asleep. They, right, they got Jesus in the boat, but, but dude's taking a nap. I mean, he's, he's asleep. Like, question, how is he asleep in the storm? Like, this isn't like a cruise liner. This is a fishing boat. It is not large, all right? How is Jesus asleep? How hasn't he been startled by the claps of thunder? How isn't he noticing that the waves are starting to cascade over the edges of the boat and there's like water sloshing around their ankles? Like, like what, how is he not awake at this moment? In Mark's account, Mark's account of this story, the disciples wake Jesus up, which by the way, don't ever wake Jesus up from a nap. This is good advice, okay? Don't wake anybody up from a nap, but especially not Jesus, okay? But, but they, they wake Jesus up and they say, Jesus, don't you care? Don't you care that we're perishing? You ever feel that way? Got him in your boat, get out into open water. It starts getting crazy. And your first thought is, don't you even care about me, Jesus? Jesus, we're about to die. You're, you're overwhelmed. You're feeling like you're being crushed. And it's like, it's like he doesn't even care. He seems to be asleep. Listen, if he exists at all. <laughs> Ever hear that question when you're in the boat, in the storm? This is, see, this is often how we feel. That's often how we feel. Jesus is asleep and we're freaking out. Now, Matthew is putting this here intentionally because the calm of Jesus, the calm of Jesus sleeping through the storm is, is contrasted with the deep fear of the disciples. These are supposed to be contrasting images. Jesus is asleep on a cushion, hanging out, and they're freaking out. That's the picture here. So they wake him up. They wake Jesus up. And, and Jesus' response in Matthew's gospel is, why are you afraid? which I think is, like, I think the, fa the fear is legitimate at this point. It's fair to be a little bit freaked out right now. Uh, we're going to die? Is that something legit to be afraid of? I think so. So I think it's legitimate here, but, but Jesus says, why are you afraid? And then he rebukes the winds, and he calms the sea, and it says there was a great calm. Jesus just tells the storm that it can't be a storm anymore. Like, this is the first kind of 
point of authority that we see in the scriptures. And it's that Jesus is demonstrating that he has authority over creation. He has authority over creation. And just note, this detail is really important. Not only did the storm die down immediately, not only the winds stopped, but did you note that it said that the waves stopped? Have you ever been on a, on a boat in a storm at all? Like the winds might die down, the storm might stop, but how long does it take for the choppy waters to still, to actually calm down? That would have taken hours, and yet Jesus does it all at once, from crazy storm that's freaking out fishermen to glassy surfaces, perfect for water skiing. He does it all at once. Hear me, he stops the storm and he stops the waves caused by the storm. There's a metaphor there for us that I don't have time to mine into, but that might be worth its, your, your pay, price of admission. Right there. He has the authority not just to stop the storm, but to stop all of the waves that are caused by that storm with a word. With a word, he has authority completely over creation. Now, let's talk about how the disciples respond, okay? The, the, the math, Matthew's account says that they marveled. Okay, if you read Mark's account, it says they were filled with great fear. Now, think with me for a second. It, when they were in the storm, it says they were afraid. They felt fear in the storm. Just kind of plain old-fashioned, regular, we're gonna die, fear. But then after Jesus rescues them, it says they felt great fear. In other words, the rescue scared them more than the storm. Seeing Jesus' authority over the storm was more terrifying for them than thinking they were going to die in the storm. Essentially, Jesus, you're freaking me out, man. You're freaking me out. But I think this is the good fear, okay? And this is good fear. Could go bad, but I think it's good. I think it's good fear because it leads them to ask this question. What sort of man is this that even the winds and sea obey him? What sort of man is this? That's their question. And, and Matthew is going to be really tricky here. He's going to take us to the answer in the next story. So let's look at verse 28. When Jesus came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now, a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. All right, let's stop there. Uh, remember, we are in Gentile territory now. All those details that, that Matthew just gave us evidence this. Okay, they show us this. So we've got a bunch of Jews who get off a boat and they show up at this place called the tombs. Okay, the place where dead bodies were kept. Listen, that's unclean. Okay, then it says that there are two demon-possessed Gentiles hanging out there. By the way, demons, unclean. Right? And then just to add a little bit of salt on top, oh, there's a whole herd of pigs. Yo, that's not kosher. I mean, literally. 
Like that's not, this is, this is not where you would expect a bunch of Jewish rabbi and his posse to show up at this point. But, but this is where they end up, okay? And, and the demoniacs, these demon-possessed Gentiles, they see Jesus and they cry out, what have you to do with us, O son of God? I mean, you see Matthew right here, genius. He's answering the disciples' question from last, a couple verses ago. What sort of man is this? He answers them by having unclean, demon-possessed Gentiles identify Jesus correctly. This is no mere man. What sort of man is this? He's not a man. He's the son of God. As you read the gospels, you will find out that uh, the highest Christology always occurs from the mouths of demons. They know who he is. His disciples don't know it yet, but the demons know. And they also know that they've already lost, right? The demons already have lost. They know this because they mention the time. You've shown up uh, before the time. Some translations call it the appointed time. And that is referring to uh, the time of final judgment when Satan and all of his minions, all those demons, are thrown into the lake of fire in Revelations chap- Revelation chapters 19 and 20. That's what he's, he's taught, the time. The demons say, why are you here before the time? Well, it's like Jesus showed up early. He showed up before the time. And so they, want, they just say, hey, leave us alone, Jesus. What do, you, what do you have to do with us? It's not the time. But then look what happens in verse 31. And the demons begged him, saying, if you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. PETA was furious. Okay. Verse 33, the herdsmen fled. And going uh, uh, into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Okay. The demons, there's two things that happen here that the same word is used, beg. The demons beg Jesus to cast them into the pigs, and the townspeople beg Jesus to leave. Just note that, okay? But, but here, Jesus, as, as the demons say, cast us into the pigs. Don't cast us out. Cast us into the pigs. Jesus speaks only one word. If you notice, in this entire exchange, there's only one word that Jesus vocalizes in that moment. And so he says one word. He says, go. That's it. Go. Now, at this time, there are itinerant Jewish exorcists who will go around performing exorcisms of demoniacs, of those who are demon oppressed. And so, in order for them to exorcise a demon, they would often go on and on. They would have to ask the name of the demon. They would, they would have to like, inquire what their, their uh, kind of uh, t- territory of operation was. And then they would use various incantations to try and exorcise said demon from one who is oppressed, just trying to get it to leave. But here, Jesus is demonstrating his authority over cosmic forces. I mean, his authority over these cosmic forces, he only needs one word. He doesn't need to babble on and on. He doesn't need to get the right incantation. He just says, go. And just like the storm 
is no longer allowed to be a storm. Go, the demons, they flee immediately. They are immediately obedient to his word and he frees these two men from their oppression. Now onto the response, because the response is really interesting, right? Because the townspeople, Matthew turns to the townspeople uh, and their reaction. And in Matthew, uh, I mean, Mark and Luke's account of this story, um, th- they provide a reason for the towns, town, town, townspeople's, there's some apostrophes in there, I don't know how they work. The townspeople's response. He focuses in on this. And, and Mark and Luke say that, that the reason why they say they begged Jesus to leave is because they were afraid. Which is making sense, right? They are afraid. Now, here's where scholars disagree. Scholars disagree as to why they're afraid of Jesus at this point. Different commentators will tell you different things. Some want to say that Jesus, they, they, they ask Jesus to leave their region because he's just ruined them financially. Like some will say that's why they're afraid of him because he just sent the whole herd of pigs, probably that entire city, that entire town's income, and they're floating in the river. They're floating in the sea. Some, some uh, upwards of 1,000, 2,000 pigs just float. So maybe they're just ticked at Jesus because he just ruined them financially. But I'm not completely convinced of that. I think that has some merit, but I'm not completely convinced that that's why they're afraid. Look again at verse 33. There's one word that Matthew includes that I think is really important here. This is what it says. The herdsmen fled. So the, the ones who are guarding the pigs, they flee. They go into the city and they told everything, comma, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And that one little word, especially, makes me think that Matthew is placing special emphasis on the report of the exorcisms, not just on the financial loss of the pigs. Now remember, get your mind in this for a second. These are Gentiles. They're not used to any of this stuff. They're Gentiles, and the scene that they walk up on as they come out to see Jesus is they walk into two demoniacs who are now in their right minds, sitting next to the sea. Uh, They're able to actually get to them. Remember, they were so fierce that they weren't even able to pass them, but now they're able to get there. And, oh, by the way, there's thousands of floating pig carcasses. I mean, this is the scene that these Gentiles walk into. To to them, Jesus must have been a terrible sorcerer. They didn't have a worldview for this kind of power. They must have feared for their lives. And maybe, listen, maybe Matthew wants to expose them that they really value swine over the Savior. I had one guy say that in his text. I'm just not completely convinced of that. Because either way, their response is startling. They reject him. Their response to especially the two demoniacs being exercised is to beg him to leave. They reject Jesus. The threat that the authority of Jesus has leads to their response of rejection and they beg him to leave their territory. When freaked out by Jesus, they reject him and hear me, he will not force his way into where he is not wanted. So they leave. And there's one more story, starting in chapter nine, verse one. And getting back into the boat, 
he crossed over and came to his own city. So he's back in Jewish territory again. Verse two, and behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid. And they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Now, this is the third of this kind of triplet of of, uh, miracle stories. And this is probably one of the more famous ones because you might remember this from the other two gospels. Mark chapter two and Luke chapter five cover the same story, but with a detail that is omitted in Matthew's uh, coverage of this. You might remember it. The friends who bring the paralyzed man actually have to dig a hole in the roof and lower the paralyzed man down before Jesus because the room is so full. But hear me, Matthew omits this detail in this story because I think his focus is on something else. Okay, now, remember, they're back on the Jewish side of the lake, and and Jesus is doing more healing ministries, and so these people bring a paralyzed man to him on a mat, and and they lay lay this man at Jesus' feet. And Jesus, when he sees their faith, it says their faith, not just theirs, but also that, that includes his, the paralyzed man and his friends. When he saw all of their faith, he says, your sins are forgiven and the whole place freaks out. That's that's the part that drives everyone bananas. It's the fact that he says, your sins are forgiven. Now, Matthew really interestingly uh, mentions that the scribes are thinking to themselves, this guy's blaspheming. This is blasphemy. Now, listen to me. It is. It is absolutely blasphemous to forgive sins, hear me, if you're just a man. This man is blaspheming. Well, yeah, if he's a man. You see this? I mean, this is what Matthew is trying to do here. This is really intricate, okay? Back to chapter 8, verse 27. The disciples ask, what sort of man is this? In verse 3 of chapter 9, it says, this man is blaspheming. And even to the last verse, verse, verse 8, uh, the, the, they glorified God and asked, who has given such authority to men? The whole thing here is trying to establish who is this guy? See what's happening here. Jesus has authority over creation. Jesus has authority over cosmic forces. And now Jesus has authority over the corruption of sin. It's not just the weather. It's not just the demons. It's now I can forgive sin, which only God can do. Thus showing us that this is no mere man we're dealing with. He's the son of man. He's the Lord of all creation. The demons got it right. This guy is the son of God. 
But then I imagine the friends and the dude on the mat are just like, hey, Jesus, appreciate the whole sin-forgiving thing. But remember those lepers from a couple chapters ago? And that like centurion servant who you just kind of healed from a distance? Like, I love the sin thing, but man, I'd love to walk. Like we came here for a physical healing, Jesus. Like I imagine that's going on in their mind. But Jesus, hear me, he's showing them that, that, that sin is the origin, the origin of all sickness, of all suffering. He's showing them that there's a deeper need than just getting your legs back. Of course he can offer physical healing. He's already shown that. Of course he can heal the guys walking. But now he's showing this man that that he needed something more than to walk. He needed to have a spiritual healing. See, Jesus has authority over the, the corruption of sin, not even just over our physical bodies. It's like taking it to the next level. It's like Jesus 2.0 showing up. Jesus, he displays this authority now on multiple levels with this story. Do you see this, okay? Uh, He knows the minds of the scribes. Do you see that? Scribes are just thinking it, which is a terrifying thought that, that Jesus knows what you're thinking. But he's just like, hey, he calls him out on it and demonstrates his, his omniscience. And that's pretty impressive, right? And then just to make sure, just to show that he actually does have the authority to do what he just claimed, which is forgiving sins, he tells the paralyzed man to get up, pick up his mat, and go home. And listen, the man who had to be drugged in there by his friends gets up and walks out unassisted. All these uh, charges of blasphemy are totally disproven. Totally disproven. Jesus' divine authority is doubly emphasized here by Matthew. He has authority over both sickness, yes, but sin. Now, one last time, look at verse eight. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid. They freaked out, but their response is different. Their response is different than the townspeople because it said they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Jesus, you're freaking us out. They were afraid. But unlike the townspeople, they don't reject Jesus. No, they glorify God. They don't even know. They, they still don't get it, right? They said they're still, they, you can see it in their words. God's given this kind of authority to men. They don't even see it yet. They don't even really know who Jesus is, but they give God glory. They don't reject God. They revere God. In response to witnessing this terrifying authority, they worship God. They don't beg him to get out. It's a huge difference. Now, what do we do with these stories? Like, what do we do with these three stories. You'll see this in Matthew chapters eight and nine, that there's three miracles and then a little discipleship moment, and then three more miracles and a little discipleship moment. This is kind of why we're preaching it through this way, because these three kind of go together as a triplet. So what do we do with this? Like, what do we do when, when we, like, like these disciples, like these townspeople, like the crowds, when we get freaked out, when Jesus, you're freaking me out, what do we do? Well, I, I think we mostly see that these stories are pointing towards the good fear that I talked about in the introduction. This good fear, I mean, Proverbs 1-7, which was read over us this morning, says this, the fear of the Lord 
is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Yeah, listen, it is good and it is right to just kind of get freaked out by Jesus. The problem is, I don't think that's our problem. The problem is, I don't think today many of us are, are afraid in the best sense of the word. Like we've swung the pendulum to Jesus is my homeboy. I got the t-shirt. Buddy Jesus, right? He's my friend. Like, yeah, I, I, for Jesus, I do it. I do it with my, I, I say bro all the time, right? Like this, it's treating him at a level that's lower than he deserves. It's without the authority. Like we should be freaked out by who this man is. But those who fear Jesus, hear me, need not fear anything else. This is then why I think Jesus said, why are you afraid to his disciples? Is because if you have the healthy fear of Jesus, then you need not fear anything else. You see, when you realize how powerful he actually is, that he has authority over all of creation, that he has authority over all the cosmic forces, the powers and principalities, as Paul will say, that he has authority over all of the corruption that causes sin within us. And you need not be afraid of anything else. I mean, think about these stories, just, just real quick, okay? He's in the boat with them. I pointed that out. He's in the boat with them when they're afraid. Jesus goes to the tombs with them when they encounter the, the forces of demons and, and with a word cast them out. He's, he is in the room with them when the sick and the, the ill and the broken are brought in and he is able to heal both spiritually and physically. This is what we celebrate every Christmas. Emmanuel, God with us. He is with you. He is with us. And those who healthily fear Jesus need not fear anything else. Why? Because he is with you. You see, fear in our lives, the bad fear, the unhealthy fear, it comes from either forgetting his power or doubting his commitment. Like the bad fear, the crippling fear is when we, we doubt his power, his authority over all of these things, or we doubt his love for us. Jesus, I know you can heal it, but maybe you just don't love me enough. So I ask you, what's your response? What's your response to the authority of Jesus? He has authority over creation. He has authority over the cosmic forces of darkness. He has authority over the corruption of your sin. He has ultimate authority. But you have, given here by Matthew, you have two kind of opposite responses. You can reject him. You can reject him and beg him to leave. And listen, he will leave. Or you can revere him even if you don't know all the nuts and bolts of theology, you think he might still be a man, you're not quite sure how much God he is or how much man he is. Listen, scholars don't. It's really hard. Some major heresies around that. You're not going to figure it out today. But you can still revere him. You can still step back and say, what sort of man is this? That even the wind and the seas obey him. See, when you're in storms, you can trust that he's in your boat. 
He's in your boat. When you're near death and decay and, and darkness, you can trust that he's with you, that he's been there, that he, with a word, can cast them out. And when you're in need of healing, physical, yes, physical healing, but even more importantly, soul, spirit, healing, sin, corruption, healing from your sin, healing from your brokenness. Hear me, he is more than able. He has power. He has authority over all. So the question I'll leave you with is this. You freaked out? I hope so. Let's pray together. Yeah, Lord, it is, it's good that these, these stories are recorded in this gospel for us. Lord, many of us are so familiar with these stories that we miss little details and it's good that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you give fresh eyes to see things that maybe we've read hundreds of times and skipped over. And so, Father, I, I pray that, that today, as your followers, we would be in awe of your authority your complete authority over creation, your complete authority even over those enemies of ours and your complete authority over the corruption that rots us. Lord, we, we are grateful for this picture of Jesus as authoritative. We want to learn from that. We want to, we want to submit to that. We want to bow the knee and praise Jesus more because of that. But, but Lord, we also want to learn from from these responses, from a rejection response and from a reverence response. It's easy for us when we get freaked out to run, to flee, to beg you to leave. And yet, Lord, often in the scriptures, we see that the best response to the fear that we feel is to worship you. Lord, help us to do this. Holy Spirit, empower us to praise you, to give you what is due to you. So, Father, use these stories, these three encounters to deepen us, to, as John already said, to, to make us into disciples, to take us deeper with you, to further us closer to holiness and to reverence for you. God, we thank you for this. We pray all of these things in the name and the power of Jesus and through the Holy Spirit.